Virginia Tech finally breaks through in the ACC win column, while UVA continues to live and die with a razor-thin margin. Virginia's football offense and defense get lifts with the return of quarterback Brennan Armstrong and the hiring of a defensive coordinator. All that and the ACC takes a stance that may hold up college football expansion this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 74 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and joining me here as always, my co-host, the 13-time sports writer of the year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, David Teal. David, how are you this morning? I'm doing great. I tried to reach you, or our co-worker Greg Medea tried to reach you at one point yesterday, and you were off with something a little more important. Uh, what what were you doing? How were you spending the afternoon yesterday? Well, with uh, the kids off of school on MLK Day, I took Tiny Teal to see Sing 2. We, we masked up and uh, socially distanced pretty well in the theater with our assigned seat. I like it. And, and I know this is a sports podcast, but who can resist a little movie review? David, how, how was Sing 2? We loved it. Now, Laura does not know... Bono or Matthew McConaughey or <laughs> or Scarlett Johansson or any of the big names that that are in the movie their voices but it was great I mean we were dancing in the seats and just having a grand time yeah we'll have to put it on the list we we spent most of the the last couple we got a lot of snow here again in, in Charlottesville um, five inches so a little less than the, than the first big snow we got, but enough to, to keep us basically homebound. And, uh, my two-year-old, he's in one of those kicks where if he likes a movie, we watch it again and again oh, yeah. and again. And, and luckily for me, he's got pretty good taste. So the movie that was on uh, high volume repeat was Encanto, the, the new, uh, Disney movie. Um, and the songs in that are great. The only thing that's kind of funny is he's to that point now where he's not necessarily getting the whole story as a two-year-old. So he often asks me to, to fast forward or rewind, and he just wants to hear certain songs over and over again. So um, again, like I said, luckily, if you haven't seen it, good movie and great soundtrack. There was just a New York Times article I saw uh, on one of the songs there that um, we don't talk about Bruno. Um it slaps, as the kids say. So the, <laughs> we, we've enjoyed having that on, on high repeat and, and learning uh, some of those songs. Well, what had been on repeat for a while, David, was Virginia Tech losing tough ACC games. Uh, Mike Young told us after the UVA loss, guys, we, I just need something good to happen, right? Hmm. His team was playing hard, playing connected, just needed to break through. Well, something good happened. Over the weekend with the win over Notre Dame, which had been as hot or hotter than any team in the ACC. David, what did we see finally in, in that one from Virginia Tech to, to maybe give us some hope there for the Hokies the rest of the way? Well, first of all, Mike, it was an ideal matchup, I think, for Virginia Tech, Notre Dame's six-game winning streak notwithstanding. Number one, it was at home. Number two, the Fighting Irish, for all of their offensive firepower, they are lacking a little bit on the defensive end, especially in the interior. And boy, did the Hokies exploit that with Keve Aluma and most important in my mind, Justin Mutz, who, as you recall, he only took two shots in the loss that. 
at, at, at UVA. And he only scored six points in the home loss to NC State. And Mike Young, to, to, to his credit, sat him down after the UVA game and didn't say, I need more of you. Young took the opposite approach. He goes, what can I do as a coach to make things easier for you and get you more involved on the offensive end? And then at the end of the conversation, Mike Young said he told Justin Mutz, pin your ears back and go play. And that's just what that young man did. He had a season-high 24 points uh, the other day. I think he was, yeah, 9 of 11 from the field and seven rebounds, three assists, a steal, a block shot. He was terrific. Yeah, you know, when we talk about you can't coach everybody the same, I think that's a perfect example because, you know, Mike Young told us Justin Mutz wasn't playing badly, right? But he was always looking to make that extra pass. And and sometimes that's not what a team needs. And sometimes you have a player that's naturally unselfish and willing to go after it on the glass and, and do the other things. But, hey, Virginia Tech needed him to be aggressive and go score. And you're right. I think Mike found uh, the right way to do it. He didn't need a kick in the butt because he was playing hard and he didn't need, you know, he didn't need to be dressed down. He didn't need to work on a, a skill. He just needed that mindset of, hey, we need you to go get it. So so what can we do around you to make you comfortable to just like you said, pin your ears back? You always hear that with, with pass rush. Bud Foster used to say that about his defensive ends. He said, I just want them to get in that mentality where they pin their ears back and go. And uh, Justin Mutz did that. And because Mutz was so effective. And because Aluma was so effective inside, yep. I think that's what helped Naheem Aline kind of break out of his shooting slump. Because number one, the pressure's off a little bit, right? You're not taking every shot feeling like, if I don't hit this, we're not scoring on this possession. And two, the defense is sinking, right? Just from an X's yes. and O's standpoint, Mutz and Aluma get going in the paint, and all of a sudden, Elaine's got another inch or two to get that shot off. And David, you and I didn't play college basketball, but we know that inch or two makes a big difference. He was four of his previous 25 beyond the arc, Mike. Woof. And went four for five the other day, eight of 10 overall, season high 22. Just, and he's such a nice young man. You know, in our presence, he's just so easygoing and doesn't seem to have an ego and is kind of hard on himself. And apparently he told Aaron McFarling and, and, and some other media after the game the other day that he had turned off all his social media, was just shutting out all the noise and was in the gym trying to figure it out. And, you know, it's funny because, and I think we've talked about this on the pod, but um, that social media stuff, I've seen fans and readers and followers of mine who are saying, you know, bench them. And we talked about, okay, there weren't really many options, but we also talked about, like we just said with Mutz, it's not that he was playing badly and it's not that he wasn't playing hard. He was great on the defensive end. He is willing to crash the glass. He is willing to share the basketball. This was just a shooting slump. And and again, you know, we go back to, to Mike Young and, you know, what did Mike Young do to help him? I'd say nothing, right? <laughs> Mike Young said, hey, I trust you. You're a great player. Keep playing defense. Keep crashing the boards. Keep taking your shots when they're there. And they're going to start falling. And, and, and now they have. And I think uh, with that inside-outside punch, and we'll talk about it when we get to UVA as well, I think it's just crucial in college basketball. Uh, and I think that it is certainly a, a very good omen uh, for Virginia Tech that Elaine had got that going. 
no doubt, and especially a, a good omen, Mike, as Virginia Tech hits a portion of mm. the schedule that is a serious grind because of the rescheduled COVID postponement in Chapel Hill on Monday because tomorrow night at NC State, Saturday at Boston College, Monday at North Carolina, Wednesday home against Miami. Four games, eight days. Yeah, The Hokies are sitting there at one and four. They're in 14th place in a 15-team league. We're going to know a whole lot more about them in the next eight days. I think NC State and Boston College, and again, we we always joke about there's no must-win games in January. You need uh, to have them both. I think you do. I think yes. you got to beat the Wolfpack and the Eagles because of what's next. When you look at Carolina, you look at Miami, and then David, the, the reward if you survive that stretch Florida is a State. trip to Florida State, who yep. is starting to play like the Florida State we expected uh, and, and starting to really put it together. So this is absolutely a make-or-break stretch for the Hokies and, and one uh, that could potentially uh, bury them or elevate them. Yeah, in terms of NCAA tournament qualification, you're, you're absolutely right. I looked at the net rankings this morning, Mike. Virginia Tech's there at 41, still hanging in in, in, in decent shape. Um, but you're right, this, this stretch is essential. Yeah, Virginia Tech, for, for whatever the reason, is in better shape right now um, if it gets things going, I would say, to make the NCAA tournament than, than UVA. Would you agree? Oh, Virginia's 95th. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Tech, not that they'll do it, because, right, we just talked about how hard the road there is. But mm-hmm. you look at the two teams and you say, okay, if they both get hot, they both get going, they both start winning some games, who's in the driver's seat to, to do something postseason, to get to the postseason? Yeah, I think it's absolutely the Hokies. And, and I don't completely understand um, when I look at the quad, and you wrote about some of this a, a week ago, but when you look at some of the quad one, quad two stuff, I don't quite understand why UVA's schedule is viewed so differently than Virginia Tech's, but uh, the numbers are what they are, I suppose. I don't understand at all, Mike. It's not that I don't quite understand. I don't understand a lick. I mean, Virginia's Q1 wins, you know, they, they, they won at Clemson, although that's probably not a Q1 anymore now that the Tigers have hit the skids. But the, the neutral floor win over Providence, <clears throat> excuse me, up in Newark is by far the, the best win among the, you know, or between the two schools, the, the Hokies and Cavaliers. And Virginia Tech, even uh, UVA strength of schedule is rated a, a tick higher than Tech's. So it, it will be in, of course, UVA beat Tech. That's the data point that I don't understand how it didn't tip things a little more. Right. I mean, the the only data point that truly favors Virginia Tech is the head-to-head against Navy. Virginia Tech blew them out by 20 in Annapolis, and of course the midshipmen won the season opener at JPJ. Now, UVA, of course, didn't help its case or its resume any when it it couldn't finish off Wake Forest in this past game. And um, again, we we say, okay, there's no must-wins in January, but that felt like a big... uh, get it, as does this next one at Pittsburgh, the chance to bank some ACC wins. Um, what went wrong for UVA, uh, I would say, in the final 10 minutes against Wake Forest? Well, first of all, Mike, you, you, you mentioned the the upcoming games this, this week and the chance to bank some ACC wins. Tomorrow night at Pitt, Saturday at NC State, Monday at home against Louisville. Those are three games the Cavaliers, if they're an NCAA tournament team, those are three games they're going to win. If they're and not, 
then they're going to stumble. But if they're an NCAA tournament team, they're going to win those three games. David, where's your confidence level in this team winning those three games, three in a row? Not great. Yeah. Not not after what we saw Saturday afternoon at, at John Paul Jones Arena. And that's that's the crazy part, Mike. For years now, it's been one of the best home court advantages in the sport. And Virginia's lost four home games. Yeah. And it's it's January 18th. And, and they, they still got some pretty good cats coming in there to play, <laughs> including Mike Krzyzewski's bunch. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly alarming, and I think it goes back to what coaches always tell you, which is it's about the team, right? It's, yeah. I mean, the home oh, yeah. court helps. Certainly it helps, but it's about the team, and this isn't a great Virginia team. I don't, I don't think anybody thought this was going to be a great Virginia team. Um, is it a good Virginia team? Some nights it is, David, mm-hmm. and some stretches it is, but when they go six minutes without scoring, oh, it's not a very good Virginia team when you go that long. Nobody's very good when they go <laughs> six, six minutes. Virginia's probably better than most when yeah. it goes six minutes without scoring because it's still pretty good on the defensive end. But you, your original question, it's my fault for getting us off track. You asked what went wrong in, in the last, what, eight, eight to ten minutes. Mm-hmm. It was that offensive drought that gets them far too often. And then all credit to Alondis Williams, the, the, the Wake Forest, Oklahoma transfer, slashing forward type, who, by the way, leads the ACC in scoring and assists. And that's never been done before. It's a nice guy. Ever. If, if he finishes the season leading the league in scoring and assists, he's the first guy ever to do that. And he was having a terrible game offensively. But lo and behold, in those last few minutes, he came alive and kind of carried his team. Yeah, and David, he, he played phenomenally. He also scored a few times on, and this has been the buzzword for Tony Bennett, second yep. chance points, points, offensive rebounds, putbacks. This Virginia team, even when they're playing well defensively, giving up those second chance points mm-hmm. is brutal. Because as you referenced, I mean, they're going to have stretches, hopefully not six plus minutes, but they're going to have three minute scoring droughts every game. That's just the way this team is built. When they get defensive stops and get the ball, they need to get the ball back. They can't afford, and we've seen it too, and some of it's unlucky, with great defense for 28 seconds and then a team throws in a prayer at the end of the shot clock. That kills Virginia because they need that to be an empty possession. When they get a great stop and then give up an offensive rebound, that kills Virginia because they need that to be an empty possession. And it's been you know, a problem. And I think at Carolina, maybe we thought, okay, look at Carolina's front court. That's the reason. But it's been a problem other days, David. It has. Virginia is one of the worst teams in the country, Mike, at the percentage of opponents' missed shots that the Cavaliers are rebounding. They're below 250th in the, in the Ken Palm ratings there. And that's that's a serious issue, and by far the worst that the Cavaliers have been in this stretch under Tony Bennett when they've been really good the last seven to eight, seven to eight years. Yeah, just can't afford that. And, and another thing they couldn't afford was uh, the Armand Franklin three-point slump. But I, and I, I'm writing about this today. I give Franklin a lot of credit. He re- remained a very valuable player. It reminds me of Sam Hauser. Um, who came out in the first month for Hauser, he could not hit his three-pointers, even though that's what he was 
recruited and brought in as this three-point ace. But he was a great mid-range player, rebounder, worked on the defensive end, a passer. Armand Franklin has been a really, really good all-around player, even mm-hmm. when the threes weren't falling. Now, against Wake, we saw him go down, but how good and how important has Armand Franklin's all-around game been? Essential. Mm-hmm. And when, when you consider Virginia's struggles offensively and in the, in the fact that he has discovered that mid-range game, he, he can you know, get down in a stance and he's got He's got a wingspan to him that that makes him <clears throat> effective in in passing lanes. I think he and Reese Beekman in tandem mm-hmm. are just really, really effective there on that perimeter on the wings for for Tony. Those two are one and two on the team in steals and and just so disruptive in terms of you know when teams want to swing the ball, reverse the ball, those arms are in those passing lanes. Yeah. Uh, Plus, they're both really quick. I think they both have really good instincts. A couple of ACC coaches this week talked to me with Beekman about his instincts, uh, his anticipation. And I think Franklin has it too, that sense of where the ball's going to go, those long arms, and you can really get your hands in, be disruptive, come up with the steal. Um, yeah, I think Franklin's been great. And, and I think they need Franklin to hit that three-point shot, even though he does all those other things and is a is a contributing player because Jaden Gardner has been in a little bit of a slump. Mm -hmm. That means two things. One, you need to make up those points and the three pointer can do it quicker than anything else. But two, David, I spent some time this morning researching this and I thought this number was pretty striking. When UVA hits six or more three pointers in a game, Gardner averages 17.1 points. When they hit less than six, fewer than six threes, he's at 11.8. So that's a pretty big swing for a low possession offense. Jaden Gardner is a load to defend when you have to worry about the perimeter and you can't just sink on him, double him, trap him. When you can do those things, and Tony Bennett said, in ACC play, he's facing bigger defenders, and in ACC play, he's been facing more double teams. It's rendered him much less effective. Armand Franklin and others need to shoot Jaden Gardner back into some one-on-one matchups. It's just like we talked about at Virginia Tech, right? Yep, absolutely. With, with, with the, the Mutz Aluma combination inside, freeing up Naheem Aline and to, to a lesser extent, Storm Murphy on the perimeter and Hunter Couture, although he he didn't uh, he didn't shoot it the other day against Notre Dame. So yeah, you, you've got to have that that combination. And I had not realized that those are very striking numbers about Gardner. Yeah, it was, that was how I, I spent my morning was <laughs> going through looking for a correlation. And, and sure enough, it did not take long uh, before it jumped out. You know, Jaden Gardner to open the year. I mean, he looked like he might be ACC player of the year type caliber. Now, at one point I had asked Tony Bennett, I said, how much of that is going to translate non-conference to conference play? And, and to Tony's credit, he said, some of it will, some of it won't. But um mm-hmm. They certainly need more from Gardner. I don't know if he's player of the year caliber, but but they need more production from him. And, th- and that does bring us, when we're talking about player of the year, to this week's edition of Who You Got. Thank you, Mike. UNC coach Hubert Davis said this week that his forward, Armando Bacot, is the clear choice for the ACC player of the year. Do you agree? Who you got as ACC player of the year right now? Let's start with David. Guys, I would expect nothing less of Hubert Davis than a ringing endorsement of Armando Baycott 
for ACC Player of the Year, and you can make a terrific case. Baycott leads the league in rebounding and field goal percentage. He's seventh in scoring. He's had back-to-back 29-point games, playing great. But number one, he's not the clear ACC Player of the Year because we, we just talked about Alondis Williams at Wake Forest potentially becoming the first player in league history to lead the conference in both scoring and assists. Darion Sebron, another Virginia kid from Norfolk, is the league's number two scorer and rebounder at NC State. But if you're asking me who the player of the year is right now, he's the most gifted player. He doesn't necessarily have the best numbers, but he is the best player on the best team, and that is Paulo Bancaro. Thank you, David. Mike? I mean, you look at Bancaro, he's at, what, 18 points and seven rebounds a game. And and like you said, on a team where that's exactly what they need from him. When they need a little more, he can get it. But um, I'm looking at at Darion Sebron at at North Carolina State. And and the problem is that State isn't winning enough. But, I mean, he's right there. Baycott is the only guy in the league right now averaging a double-double. Uh, Sebron's really close. He's at 19-6 <laughs> and 9-8, and depending on how he plays in this stretch coming up here, he may be there. And unlike what we just said about Bancaro, it isn't a case where, hey, there's a lot of other guys doing a lot of other things. And that NC State needs everything from Sebron. I mean, he's taking their last shots. He's doing so much for them. He needs his team to win more. But but right now, I, I give Sebron a, a slight edge uh, over Bancaro, and then I've got Alondis Williams uh, next for, for the reasons you said. And and for Williams, Duke, we went into the year and we said, hey, I think Mike Krzyzewski's got a team that can win the national title. NC State was sort of a middle of the pack, and that's where they are. Wake, we thought, was a bottom-of-the-league kind of team, and Alondis Williams is the difference. So mm-hmm. um, some of it is how you, and we always talk about this, how do you define that award, right? How do you define who the player of the year is? And if it's who's most valuable to their team, most irreplaceable, I think Alondis Williams uh, deserves a a lot of uh, talk and a lot of consideration there. But again, as we talk about with everything, whether it's player of the year, coach of the year, who's going to make the NCAA tournament, we're at January 18th. We got a lot of of basketball left. So uh, while we both disagree with Hubert at this point, uh, certainly time may, may ultimately prove him right. And for the week, hey, Armando Baycott was the ACC player of the week. So I think that was uh, maybe maybe what was skewing Hubert is that recency <laughs> recency bias, which we all understand. Now, speaking of recent, uh, UVA recently got some very good news on the offensive front. Right. Starting quarterback Brennan Armstrong, who had told me when Tony Elliott was introduced that if he stayed in college, he would stay at Virginia. He wouldn't transfer, but that he might go to the NFL. Well, we had not heard from Brendan Armstrong since. And David, you pointed out on a number of occasions, if you were a UVA fan, you were starting to get a little nervous, right? Was he, was he headed for the NFL or had enough people gotten into his ear and said, Hey, Brennan, you don't have any offensive linemen there at Virginia. (laughs) Why not look at at somewhere else? Uh, But Brennan makes it official. David, I, I think it goes without saying, but how big is the return of Brennan Armstrong for UVA and Tony Elliott? It couldn't be larger. It just could not be. You're talking about a guy who, now that he's going to start for a third year, is going to rewrite every record at UVA for total offense and passing and touchdown passes. And he's just 
that good and you pair him with Keaton Thompson and the return, hopefully from injury of Lavelle Davis and Dontavian Wicks, who was all ACC and figures to be again next season. That's a pretty good place for the offense to start. Now they just got to find some cats to block. Cats to block and maybe some cats to run the ball. Although I know that there's some backs that people still have high hopes for. Mike Hollins comes to mind, but, Man, there is there's nobody left up front, and mm-hmm. and that is scary. <laughs> and uh, you know, it reminds me, David, of Bryce Perkins' first year. Yeah, I thought Bryce Perkins' second year there was a great offense around him. Bryce Perkins' first year, if you guys remember, the offense was essentially crafted for him to run away from the offense and then make a play, whether it was a throw downfield or a run, and it worked because Bryce Perkins was an outstanding athlete. And not that Brennan Armstrong isn't, but I just think fans may need to uh, take a deep breath and be ready for the fact that uh, it might look more like Perkins year one than than what we saw from Brendan Armstrong a year ago. The game that always sticks out in my mind, Mike, about Bryce Perkins' first year as a starter in 2018 was at Notre Dame. Yeah. Because the, the Cavaliers, are they're absolutely in that game, but they couldn't close because of strip sacks. And Bryce Perkins just, he was overwhelmed by the Notre Dame pass rush time after time after time. And in that way, it was it's almost like UVA's game this season at home against Wake. Yep. It was as good as that O-line was for most of the season. They got worked by the Deacons that night. I believe Armstrong was sacked five times, and it might have been ten had he not been so elusive. It was that kind of night. But you know, you you mentioned that there's nobody left up front. You know, Olu to to Michigan and Haskins to Southern Cal and Bissinger to Southern Methodist. They got hit hard by the portal now. Yeah, they got hit hard, and and what it shows is those guys are good players, right? They didn't they didn't go to be closer to home, not to knock the kids who do, but they didn't go to be closer to home or to reunite with a. They went to the, the top programs in America because that's how good <laughs> uh, this line had been. And it was built by Garrett 2J. I feel for Garrett 2J <laughs> yeah. in the sense that he came into UVA and the line was terrible. I mean, they stunk. Kurt Bankert, bless his heart, playing behind that line his first year. And and then Perkins, we just talked about that first season. And Garrett 2J just went to work developing young guys. He'd always bring in one or two guys from the portal and from big places, right? Notre Dame and Oklahoma State. And okay, I don't know if it's a big place, but a big league. Rutgers out of the Big Ten when he got Marcus Applefield. So he always had that guy that he brought in to help turn things, but he was always developing these younger players. And and yeah, guys like Chris Glazer, and they learned by being thrown into the fire. Ryan Nelson, who just uh, declared for the NFL draft. Yes, they learned by getting thrown into the fire, but at the same time, 2J was developing and developing and building. And what he built was this past year's line. And Garrett 2J was retained because he did a great job uh, at coaching the line. He's on Tony Elliott's staff. And essentially, he's been asked to do it again. Do it all over again, right? Yep. Got to c- completely rebuild it. And in a hurry. Going to have to. The, the portal is just so critical for the Cavaliers this offseason. Yeah, and I think that, and maybe it'll come after spring ball, but the names we've seen them linked to in the portal right now, a lot of Patriot League, and, and, and not that those guys aren't good players or can't be or, or can't be starters, but I think they need to go get a really established 
offensive linemen like they have in the past, and maybe it will come because there's another shakeout, right, David, after oh, spring of course. where guys realize where they are on depth charts. And I think they're going to need to find somebody after spring ball to come in in the fall and really anchor that line because, boy, it would be a shame to waste Brennan Armstrong and these receivers because they do have a chance to be special if they can protect that group. Absolutely agree. Now, they also have to protect that offense with some defense. (laughs) Well, they went out and they got themselves a a new defensive coordinator, uh, John Radzinski from Air Force. He had been on the staff there for 14 seasons, the last four as a defensive coordinator. And now we, I guess, have an idea of what this defense under Tony Elliott, who again is, is an offensive guy, what that defense may look like. Well, Mike, the last three years at the academy, the Falcons were top 20 in the country in scoring defense. And that is impressive indeed. What I want to know is, did Tony Bennett make this hire? This guy's a Green Bay native. So you know (laughs) he comes with Tony Bennett's just wholehearted endorsement. Yeah, Tony can never have enough guys who poo-poo the snowstorms we get here in (laughs) in Charlottesville, as Tony did again this week. But David, this Air Force defense was outstanding this year. Now, Virginia has some players back, but again, like we talked about on the offense, some holes. I mean, Nick Jackson, inside linebacker, I think is where you start with this defense, but uh, Radzinski and this staff has some work to do, right? Uh, And we've seen some of it already in the portal with rebuilding this defensive unit. Noah Taylor to Carolina, and then just this week, we learned that West Weeks is headed Mm -hmm. to LSU. I really thought Weeks was a promising player, and obviously... Brian Kelly agrees, having having taken him there to, <clears throat> to LSU. I was also struck, Mike, you know, Radzinski comes from Air Force, just the service academy flavor of Tony Elliott's staff, Kevin Downing from Navy and Keith Gaither from Army. We've got each of the academies represented here. Yeah, what, what do we make of that? I, I think it's, without overthinking, we haven't had a chance to talk to Coach Elliott about it, but it, I think everyone would agree that that service academy vibe and that culture, you know, academically especially, is very similar to UVA. And who's the most successful head coach in UVA football history? Right. Yeah, George Welsh. George Welsh. You got George Welsh, that connection there. Bronco had such a a reverence for the academies, um, which he made clear all the time. And it is interesting. I I did a story this week on the impact that uh, UVA and Tech their strength coaches will have mm-hmm. in laying the foundation for what these head coaches want, right? They're the first guys who really get hands-on and get to coach these kids. Uh, UVA mandatory uh, workouts start Wednesday. So they're, they're going to get the chance there. Adam Smotherman, who came from Clemson. And Adam told me that Tony Elliott, when he talks to the staff and the players in meetings, he's talked about the acronym HEART, okay? H-E-A-R-T. Humility, effort, accountability, respect, and David, what does the T stand for? It's toughness. Yep. And I think that the military academies, and maybe it's cliche, I think they all bring that aspect of toughness. It's demanded. It's what's respected at the academies. And I think part of the reason there, as they use this heart acronym and they, they want those elements uh, like Tony Bennett's pillars, the T, the toughness, I think that's the common thread as you look at some of these hires. I would agree. And it, and it was an interesting story, Mike, that, that you did, because you're right. Before the new head coaches actually get to be on the field, 
evaluating these young players, their strength and conditioning staffs have far more access to them and get to test their toughness and see how they respond to adversity in demanding circumstances. Yeah, I asked Brent Pry, the new coach at Virginia Tech, about that. I thought he he made that point really well where he said, you know, there's adversity in the weight room. And mm-hmm. Dwight Galt, his, uh, his strength coach, he's going to be the first one to see, okay, who responds when it's tough? Who pushes through pain? Who's a leader? Who lifts up other guys? Um, you know, all of those things that you want to know about your players. And then as a new coach, it's hard. Right, it's hard because you're not on the field. You don't know these guys. Well, this is the first set of eyes in in Galt at Tech and Smotherman at UVA to tell these coaches in a private meeting, "Hey, this guy's tough," or "Hey, this guy's a little bit soft." Hey, this guy will uplift his teammates. Hey, this guy is a little bit about himself. And I think that's vital. Uh, and I think it's going to be a very crucial feedback that these guys get going into spring ball. Um, you know, certainly the. Playing on the field is going to reveal a lot too, but um, yeah, that weight room work is going to be really interesting and, and really pivotal. And you know, Smotherman told me something interesting, and it sent me down a, a research rabbit hole that I'll share with you really quickly. But he, he attributed a quote to Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon, and uh, it was where Neil Armstrong said, "If you're off by an inch or two on landing, it's no big deal. But if you're off by an inch on takeoff, you miss the moon by a million miles." <laughs> right. It's all about getting pointed, started in the right direction. Now, <laughs> the funny story is, but before you use a quote like that in a newspaper as a journalist, you go and, okay, you make sure. Did Neil Armstrong say that? I cannot tell you for sure if Neil Armstrong ever said that. The closest <laughs> I found was he said it to one of the Ebersol family members who relayed it in a story that uh, another journalist had done. So it kind of got put through secondhand. It is attributed to Neil Armstrong. Did he say it? Did he not say it? I'm not sure. I actually am reading uh, Neil Armstrong's uh, autobiography right now. So I'll be curious to see if it pops up in there. But uh, just a little research rabbit hole, David. Had you ever heard that expression before? I I had not. Nor have I. I, I'd never heard it, and then <laughs> you'll laugh at this as well. The first piece of, of info I found as I researched whether or not that quote was legit, Buzz Williams, the former Virginia Tech coach, uses it in one of his Get Better videos that you find online. Um, it's like the opening screen and uh, attributed there to Charlie Ebersol, who was who Neil Armstrong reportedly said the quote to. So good work by Buzz Williams. And in fact-checking and, and making sure that he didn't necessarily ascribe it uh, to the first man on the moon if he didn't say it. But that is just a random aside there. But it makes a lot of sense, right? This is the moment, this is the time for Tony Elliott, for Brent Pry to get their programs pointed the direction they want to go. Absolutely. Now, David, in a, in a totally unrelated area, you got to spend some time delving into the A-10. Uh, at A-10 basketball, you saw a doubleheader there with, with VCU and Richmond. Uh, I'm curious, what were your takeaways and, and how good were the teams, uh, all four of them, because Richmond and VCU both fell to quality opponents? How good was the basketball you saw? Friday night, d- d- doubleheader on ESPN Networks. Uh, they called the Friday showcase, and for the first time, you know, the ESPN's been doing this for the A10 for seven years, but this is the first time it was two games on a, on a Friday night, and just happened to involve both our city teams. And VCU really struggled. 
up at St. Bonaventure for the second consecutive season. <clears throat> the Rams lost by double figures up there last season. And again, Friday night, didn't shoot it well. And much to Mike Rhodes' chagrin, did not defend with its usual aggressiveness. Uh, in large measure there in the second half, Vince Williams got in foul trouble. He's their most versatile piece, both ends of the floor in, in my mind. Just so experienced and long and athletic, unselfish. He can make a three when you need it. And he went to the bench with 17 minutes to go with four fouls. And VCU's down, I believe it was nine at the time. And by the time he gets back on the floor, they're down 17 and they're done. And it just, it, it really hurt them. And then on the flip side, Richmond's at home against Davidson and falls behind 16 to two. And I'm thinking, oof, it's going to be a really gruesome night for, <laughs> for the local teams. But second half, Rich, Richmond's ahead by half dozen and playing great and defending. But the, the Miller kid from Davidson, he makes eight of nine from beyond the arc. Davidson's the second best three-point shooting team in the country. They've got a graduate transfer point guard from Michigan State named Foyer, who's who's really good. And the, the, the portal hurt Davidson because Kellen Grady left for Kentucky where he's, he's tearing it up f for the Wildcats and averaging double figures and has started every game for John Calipari. But Davidson right now, Mike, has won 13 in a row, tied with Auburn for the second longest active winning streak in the country. And oh, by the way, who plays at the Siegel Center tonight against VCU? But none other than those Davidson Wildcats. And I'm really looking forward to getting in the car here later this afternoon and heading up the road to watch that game. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be watching that one on on TV because you know Richmond uh, one and three now in the conference. I, yeah, I think hurting. they're 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 in a bad spot. But VCU still got a chance. Um, I think they're ten and five overall. They're three and one in the conference. I think, still think they have a chance to make something special out of this season. Uh, certainly, you got Dayton and, and St. Bonaventure up there near the top of the league too. And uh, it remains to be seen exactly what. I think Rhode Island and St. Louis are, but they, they have a chance to be good. But yeah, this one tonight it should be entertaining. And um, Davidson looks like the real deal. I mean, Davidson looks like forget league affiliation. Um, they might be the real deal. I'm, I'm curious as we look around the state, who's the real deal. And that brings us to this week's edition of Take It or Leave It. Thank you, Mike. So the best college basketball team in Virginia this season is in the Atlantic 10. Take it or leave it. Let's start with Mike. Well, I'll say I don't know, but I would say that, <laughs> that that right now I would say that VCU is the best team. If you asked me if I had a team and you said you got to play somebody, VCU is my last choice right now. I think they are um, their style of play. I think they've got some versatile pieces. I think they have the talent. What Mike Rhodes is doing matches uh, what his roster is. Um, that is an interesting place always to play. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think right now the, the best basketball team in Virginia uh, is in the A-10, and I think it's VCU now with Virginia's defense that may change and, as the season goes on, and, and, and we talked about Tech's talent. But, yeah, right now give me Mike Rhodes and the Rams. Thank you, Mike. David? Mike, I agree, and for, for one primary reason. VCU has been whole, meaning Ace Baldwin has been back now for seven games. And the Rams are six and one when he when he's on the floor. 
And the, the one, obviously, it was a big hiccup at St. Bonaventure, but St. Bonaventure is the reigning A-10 champion and returns all five starters from that team. And all five of those starters averaged double figures last year and averaged double figures this year. Translation, they're really good and they're really experienced and they are a load on their home court. So that that is not a red flag for me. And you combine Baldwin and Vince Williams, and they got Marcus Sahonis, the, the Washington transfer off the bench. Uh, I like this team, and I'm really interested to see how it bounces back tonight against league leader Davidson. Yep. Should be a good one. And, and David, uh, before we go, uh, last week you had the chance to spend a little time with ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips. And um, the main topic of that call there, David, was the ACC's, uh, let's say, opposition to the mm-hmm. expansion of the college football playoff as it's currently being discussed. Take us through the commissioner's point of view and, and the league's point of view on this. Well, first of all, Mike, I give Jim Phillips credit because he's really the, the first to come out and say, here is exactly what we are objecting to. Here's where we might be flexible down the road. And what Phillips and the ACC, and Phillips is beholden to his membership. This is not a Jim Phillips thing. This is based on feedback he is getting from his bosses, university presidents, and what he is hearing from his football coaches and what they are hearing from the athletes. And Jim Phillips is saying that the college football playoff should not expand before the end of the current contract. What some others were hopeful in doing was to expand after the 23 season, which would have been after year 10 of the original 12-year contract. So you'd have 12 teams in 2024 and 2025. What Jim Phillips and the ACC are saying, not now. Let's wait until 2026. Let's delay this two years because we think we need to get the overall house in order, meaning NCAA governance reform, the NIL stuff, transfer portal, all of it, athlete compensation, and see where all that lands first. He just thinks it's a matter of priorities. And what he harped upon repeatedly during this half-hour conference call was player safety and the fact that he has heard from Clemson, which has participated in, in six playoffs now, that the, play, that the athletes believe it's enough of a grind as it is. And we heard it, Mike, at the kickoff from Matt mm-hmm. Bockhorst, an offensive lineman for Clemson who was asked at the podium, what would you think of an expanded football playoff? And he said, as an offensive lineman, I don't want to play any more games. I've played a 15-game season, and that's about as much as I've got in me. Yeah, and it's a fair point. Now, so I, I think, David, that some people view it as Jim Phillips and the ACC having a little position of power and trying to leverage some of the things that they want here and and, and maybe not holding the, the expansion talk hostage, but saying we've got some things we want to address before we let you get to playoff expansion. Yes, but Mike, I don't think that the ACC's stances on, say, NIL and wanting federal intervention there to kind of supersede all these varying state laws or NCAA governance reform 
or concerns about the transfer portal. They're not really out of step with the other power five. I think some people believed, and Jim Phillips addressed this directly on the call by saying it's absolutely positively, in his words, not true, is that some people believe that the ACC was trying to leverage Notre Dame and keep the CFP expansion from, take it from four to eight rather than 12, and then only have a couple of at-large bids, which really could squeeze Notre Dame out of football independence and into joining the ACC, which would be a moneymaker for the conference. But Phillips insists that's not true and also said that the ACC is not advocating for 8 or 12 or any format right now. What the ACC is saying is no expansion until 2026. And then Jim Phillips conceded it's going to happen. And let's also remember that if the powers that be want to change the format before 2026, it requires unanimity Mm -hmm. because the contract does not expire. Once the original contract expires, that requirement for unanimity goes away and a more nebulous consensus takes hold where the ACC could simply get outvoted, which is why I believe most of us still anticipate that there will be a 12-team playoff. All the ACC really is doing here is delaying it by two years. Now, Notre Dame, if you're Notre Dame and and you want this expanded playoff, all you have to do is play the long game, right? It's coming. Mm -hmm. Is there any scenario, David, where Notre Dame joins the ACC between now and expansion? In other words, until expansion. So the contract was, what, 2026? Could you see a scenario where Notre Dame joins the ACC for four years and with the caveat of, hey, we're out once we expand the playoffs? No. Who wouldn't no. let it? The ACC wouldn't allow it? I think the, the ACC might, actually, yeah. just on, on the off chance that they decide, hey, we liked it. But the, the, the four-team playoff has worked fine for, for Notre Dame. There's four at-larges. If Notre Dame's good enough, they're most likely going to get in. They've gotten in as a member of, of the ACC in, in the COVID year, and they've also gotten in a, a, as an independent. So I don't think it, just because it's four teams for another four years that the, that the Irish would jump. I, I don't think under Jack Swarbrick's leadership as athletic director that Notre Dame will ever join the, the ACC for football. Now, if the, when there's regime change there, maybe with Swarbrick and at the presidential level, maybe, but I just I consider it such a long shot. Yeah, so maybe that's the window that the ACC is trying to stretch here is can they find a couple of years after this regime, but before the playoff is expanded? <laughs> uh, that's a pretty tight window. So I, I don't it know is. that that's going to happen. But David, we're a little bit ways away from watching the college football playoff. Uh, we're in basketball season. We're in snow season. We're in all of that good stuff. Enjoy the game tonight. And all of you, I hope you enjoyed listening today. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite pods. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the TD. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show is produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. And please join David and me again next time.